Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. If you were to begin a sentence with the word so, S-O, what would that sound like? So, how did you find the hooker in my closet? <laughs> oh, wait, is, is it like a G-rated podcast? No, no, no. Okay. If you were to end a sentence with the word so, like, what would that sound like? Okay, so I'm going shopping in Georgetown, but I don't really have enough money, so... So you want me to give you some? Yes, please. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number seven, titled A Needle Pulling Thread, wherein we discuss an overused yet underappreciated little word. So, stick around. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bob. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, you had that Stefan Fatsis imposter on. I'm, I'm glad to be back. He'll whoop your ass and scrabble. <laughs> yeah, I have no doubts. So, uh, you've got something before we get started. Yeah, I have a correction. Approximately one trillion of our listeners wrote in to point out that I absolutely butchered in the Scrabble episode the pronunciation of the word Maori, which is the language of the Maori people, native New Zealanders. I pronounced it Maori. (laughs) (laughs) And how I laughed inwardly. I hadn't heard it pronounced out loud, I guess, in a long time. And my general rule of thumb is, when in doubt, pronounce every letter. I guess I should change that rule of thumb to, when in doubt, look it up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, perhaps you were misled. Yes, right. Misled. Yeah, that's my Maori, or whatever it is you said. Uh, I I guess our listeners should know that uh, for some number of years, well into my 30s, I thought there were two words that were synonymous. (laughs) Misled and... Misled and... Misled. Misled. Yeah, it's kind of hard to explain, but that, you know, we all have our crosses to bear. Hard to explain and hard to believe, really, I just, <laughs> that it took you into your 30s before somebody said, what? Okay, so I'll, I'll explain it. I mean, what this is quite a uh, tangent, but in reading, I saw the word misled for my whole life, and I thought there was the word misled in spoken language. I would hear the word misled, and I understood what that meant, and it just simply never dawned on me. <laughs> That they were the same word. 
Uh, yeah, I'm tall, but just not you know exceptionally bright. Live and learn. So my apologies, uh, especially to our listeners down under. All right, today's episode is about a word and a phenomenon, Bob, that you brought to my attention. I hadn't really noticed it, I guess. As somebody who interviews people a lot, you did notice it. I talk to maybe two or three people on a regular basis, so it's not something that was really front in my mind. And that is... So I have spoken to many people over the years, you know, in conversations like this, being recorded. And, you know, for my entire career as a journalist, I would ask a question and people would answer the question. But without a framing device, that framing device being the word, so. About three years ago, all the answers would come prefaced by the word so. And I'd simply never heard that construction before. And it started so suddenly and has endured ever since. And I'm just mystified by the whole phenomenon. Right. And there are many different ways that so can be used and to many different effects. Let's just mention a couple of the very common uses, especially nowadays, that you're not talking about. You're not talking about so as a kind of intensifying adverb. That's so cool. Or I'm so handsome. You're not talking about that. Nope. Okay. And you're not talking about so as a way to convey this idea of most decidedly. I am so not into you. Right. Not that either. Not that either. Now, to underscore just how versatile really so can be, I want to point out another use that's not quite what you're talking about, but we're getting warmer. This is when you're telling a story and you get interrupted and you then use so as a way to recapitulate where you left off and then launch into the rest of the story. For example... Bob, have I ever told you about how my wife and I found our dog? Well, yes, endlessly, but go ahead. <laughs> Play along. <laughs> well, I know, Mike. <laughs> well, do tell. <laughs> we were at a bus stop in Mexico, and there was this little puppy walking around on the sidewalk. Have you ever been to Mexico, Bob? Why, yes, I have, Mike. It's a charming nation. When were you there? Most recently, one year ago. So there's this dog walking around at the bus stop. Aha, uh-huh, you're picking up where you left behind. I get it. In that case, I interrupted myself. Maybe you'll be interrupted by somebody else. And you're using so as a way to get back into your story. And let me just say, you, you were right when you said we're getting warmer because all of the so's that I suddenly encountered were as if someone was picking up a story where they had left off in Mexico or wherever, except we had never spoken before. They were beginning as if to recommence an interrupted conversation. Freaky. (laughs) Scary, man. Other people have noticed this, too. We've even gotten some emails about it here at Lexicon Valley. And in fact, a couple of years ago, the New York Times published a piece about this and quoted a passage from the NPR show, Tell Me More. This is a clip from NPR correspondent Ted Robbins talking to the host of Tell Me More, Michelle Martin, about Arizona's controversial immigration bill. 
That's correct. So uh, it's, I think, the fifth largest in the nation. So, but now that's the population in general. So there are sort of two things. There are circumstances, and then there's, there are things within. You hear Robbins there use the word so three times in little more than 10 seconds. He then goes on to finish his answer with seven additional sentences. Four <laughs> of those begin with so. <laughs> now, I'm not sure that anybody can explain that, and I'm not sure we can really help him explain that. Maybe he just needs to go to rehab or something. (laughs) And in fact, there's a lot we can't explain about so, because as one academic put it, there is surprisingly scarce research on the word. But we do know some things, and what we know is interesting because it sheds some light on the word in general. The field in which this work is being done is called discourse analysis. Discourse analysts, as one guy put it to me, view language as a kind of infrastructure. Just as a city needs roads and telephone wires and computer connections, and it's that infrastructure that provides for the possibility of social living, our relationships and institutions require an infrastructure of interaction as well. So that's the framework from which we're coming at this. How does language help us build and maintain or impair or even destroy our relationships? Hold it. I think I've made this clear to you in the past, Mike. I'll ask the questions. How does language build, maintain, impair, or even destroy relationships is, is my question. Well, that's what discourse analysts try to figure out. And some of them study the what of conversation, right? The topics that are brought up. For example, it's very common in building and maintaining a relationship to ask for what discourse analysts call news updates. How was your trip to California, Bob? This allows me to vicariously experience the trip with you. This is called enacting involvement. You know, I wasn't actually involved in the trip, but I can enact parts of it with you as a way to engender familiarity and closeness. Tell me about your day is a common conversational news update. Which actually really means tell me about your day, but please don't tell me about your day because I I simply don't care. (laughs) Well, that depends on how healthy your marriage is, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But the really interesting discourse analysis, I think, has more to do with the how than the what. So how do we indicate when you should talk and when I should talk? That's called turn-taking. How is what I say related to what you just said? That's called sequence organization. How do people correct some kind of confusion or misunderstanding in the conversation? Discourse analysts call that repair. Now, I spoke to a guy named Jeff Raymond at UC Santa Barbara who does discourse analysis, and he told me that looking at any or all of these things is really in the service of answering one question. Why that now? And that applies to basically whatever somebody says or does, and at whatever level of granularity you want to ask the question. So why does somebody make that utterance now? But you can also ask it for why did somebody call me right now? you know, why this occasion at this point. And then you can even ask it for the subcomponents of a turn. How come they said it in that way? How come with a so rather than an O? Or how come with rising intonation versus falling intonation? Mike or Mike? There's a whole bunch of different 
levels of detail for which why that now is a kind of solvable problem. It seems as though this stuff all just sort of happens intuitively. But of course, we all know that there are certain people who are better at managing conversations than others. Some people just sort of talk at you going on and on and on without ever pausing, without ever letting you contribute to the conversation. You mean like me right now? (laughs) I'm glad you caught my drift. (laughs) And so those have real implications for whether or not you want to remain somebody's friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of how we think of who somebody is, is the product of how they conduct themselves in interaction. In fact, it's hard to think about what else we build our relationships out of, if not those things. Well, that's fascinating on two levels. The first question I have, though, is, you know, while you're joshing around with somebody else, I I thought we had something exclusive. And the second thing is, none of it really quite answers the question of why you would begin a thought as if you were continuing a thought. Where does that come from? Well, I mentioned that there's surprisingly scarce research on so... But more and more discourse analysts are focusing on these little words and expressions like like and you know and well and so, expressions that were once thought of as filler. In fact, they were called filled pauses. But recent research has, just in the last five or ten years, has shown that these expressions, and they're called discourse markers, are more nuanced than previously thought. And so the trick is to look for patterns. Let's talk about a specific set of circumstances in the wild, so to speak. There is a researcher at Rutgers University. Her name is Galena Bolden. She sifted through 80 hours of recorded conversations. Some of them were on the phone. Some of them were face-to-face. They were all spoken conversations. And she identified all the times when somebody used so at the beginning of a sentence as a way to move the conversation onto a new topic and identified all of the times when somebody used the word oh to do the same thing. And she noticed something really fascinating. 88 out of 92 times when somebody used so in this way, the topic that they then brought up had to do with the other person or some external matter, what Bolden called other attentive topics. And 65 out of 66 times that a person used O in this way, the topic being introduced had to do with themselves, what Bolden called self-attentive topics. Now, why would this be the case? (sighs) Mike. Oh, right. You get to ask the questions, only you. Mike, why would this be the case? Well, I'm I'm really asking if you have any thoughts. Oh, (laughs) Um, because O suggests that you've just been reminded of something. And O, what you just said, reminded me to refocus the conversation on myself because that's, you know, kind of how I have conversation. In fact, I think we should devote an entire show to that phenomenon where conversation doesn't really take place, but people are just listening for key words to trigger kind of personal non sequiturs, which triggers the same kind of personal... A non sequitur in their interlocutor, and before long, speaking has taken place for five minutes, but no actual information has been exchanged. See what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I do. And you're sort of close, but the explanation that Bolden gives is actually a little more generous than that. There's a kind of clue in that example I gave earlier, using so as a way of reinitiating a story that got interrupted. What's actually happening there? 
the so suggests that you're getting back to something that's literally pending. It's on the agenda. It just got interrupted. Similarly, when you initiate a topic about your conversational partner, you may want to suggest to them that this is something that's on the agenda, on your agenda. It's on your mind. You're thinking about them. And when you bring up something involving yourself, you may want to suggest to your conversational partner that it's only just now occurring to you to talk about it as a way to mitigate the self-involved nature of what you're about to say. I once had the following conversation with a longtime friend. I uh, haven't spoken to you in a while, Bob. How are you? Well, my, my mom died yesterday. Oh, I know. My friend Rosie's cousin just had hip replacement. <laughs> <laughs> are you making that up? No. No, that, that actually happened. Did you just hang up the phone? <laughs> <laughs> no. You know what? I marveled. At humanity in all of its magnificent variety is what I did. Well, that gets to, I think, an important question here. Your friend's awful timing notwithstanding. So suggests that what you're about to say is pending in some way, either literally or more kind of conceptually in a kind of ongoing way. O suggests that what you're about to say is only just now occurring to you. That's what they suggest, but is that really what's going on? Here is Jeff Raymond again. It's tempting to think of these as reflecting some kind of underlying cognitive reality, that people are continually thinking about the people that they're in relationships with and the other people that they deal with, and that they only intermittently and occasionally think about themselves. Oh, by the way, I just remembered something that I need to tell you about me. Yes, right. Yes, right. Exactly. And in fact, it's probably more likely the case that these reflect a kind of preference for how people bring up these topics. Now, I don't mean to propose that people are somehow misleading other people in their interaction. It's part of the way in which this organization of interaction makes it possible to live with each other when, in fact, you know, humans are on the whole, probably self-centered animals, as most animals are. Perhaps a cynical way of describing it would be as a kind of conversational ploy. Maybe a more generous way to describe it would be a way of baking tact into the conversation. Yes, I think that's a really good way of putting it. So if we're talking about conversational ploys, then so means why you were smart to ask me that question, because I have an answer, I've been thinking about it, I've got it all prepared for you, and it commences thusly. Yes, exactly. I mean, when you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody and you use so as a way to change the topic, you're suggesting to your partner, there's this thing about you that I've been thinking about. Perhaps when you're simply answering a question with the so, you're also trying to suggest, I've been thinking about this. Not just I've been thinking about this, but I've been thinking about this, and here is the explanation, colon. Okay, let's take a very brief break to talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Those of you who listen to podcasts probably know that Audible is a provider of digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. On Audible, there are thousands, 100,000 audiobooks that you can listen to on just about any device including whatever you're listening to us on right now. 
And Audible has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. You just have to use the special URL that they set up to do this. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. And of course, they have all the classics. What I would recommend if you haven't already read them all is Anything and Everything by Michael Lewis. He wrote Moneyball and Liar's Poker. He also wrote a lesser known book called The New New Thing, which I'll be mentioning a little bit later. If you haven't read them, I would suggest any one of those. You can't go wrong. Also, if you sign up for a membership, it includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try. The URL that Audible set up so that they know you're a Lexicon Valley listener is audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to So. Let's talk about a case where So might appear at the end of your thought, what's sometimes called a trailing off So. Oh, let's do that, man. (laughs) Because this has emerged at approximately the same time. It may have had a bit of a head start, but this whole idea of filling the vacuum with, so... Right. And again, there's some research that can indicate a little bit about what's going on here. This is research that Jeff Raymond has done. First, I want you to imagine the following hypothetical conversation. You say to me, Mike, chimpanzees are vegetarians, aren't they? And I answer, you know, I remember that Jane Goodall observed chimpanzees eating pigs in the wild, so I don't think they are vegetarians. Now, I could have just said, no, they're not. They're not vegetarians. But I gave you additional information, then gave you what Jeff Raymond calls the so-prefaced upshot. (laughs) Uh, uh, Mike, how do you get an academic gig? I want one. (laughs) So-prefaced upshot. Or, you know, as we in the non-PhD cohort uh, might call it, a conclusion. So, I don't think they are vegetarians. Yeah, that's a conclusion. But I could have omitted the upshot. I could have said, you know, I remember that Jane Goodall observed chimpanzees eating pigs... So, leaving the upshot unsaid, because maybe I think it's redundant, or maybe I'm hoping to pass off the upshot to you so that you can arrive at this revelation explicitly. Uh, What you're describing is an implied conclusion. Yeah, so that you'll say, oh, then they're they're not vegetarians. I guess not. So it's an implied conclusion, kind of like spoken ellipses that in one way or another signals to your interlocutor that you have come to the same point. And it may be that having you say the upshot is important to me and consequential, more consequential than, say, in that first hypothetical example with the chimpanzees. Here is Jeff Raymond again. Somebody might say, you know, Mike, it's all your fault. I've been trying to call you all morning and your phone was busy for like hours. And you say, no, 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 it's not me. Bob was talking on the phone the whole time. And I might say, yeah. So I've now passed on a chance to absolve you of responsibility of registering how it might matter that it was really all Bob's fault. And thank goodness he's not here to defend himself. So you might give me a second chance and say so. And that allows me to go back and think, what else could he have been saying that I have yet to register? 
and I might say, oh, okay, never mind, I got it, it's all Bob's fault. And it may be important to me to have you be the one to recognize and absolve me, because if I do it, I might sound defensive. That's right, and the other part of that is now the other person gets the chance to do the absolution, because if you ask for the absolution, now they've done it at your request. It's not as valuable. That's right. But it's also, it, it reduces the other person's opportunity to produce an action in a kind of self-determined way. So it's not only not as valuable to the person being absolved, but it may preclude the possibility for the other person to have genuinely initiated the absolution on their own terms. Boy, oh boy, interaction is complicated. Boy, is it. (laughs) (laughs) It's enough to make you never want to leave the house. You know, this is why most of us work in offices and deal with recordings. (laughs) So, basically, the uh, preambular so seems to suggest an agenda and a forthcoming definitive explanation. And the trailing so is a kind of handoff to the partner, often signaling shared understanding of what has been implied. So... Are you passing back to me now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Then uh, let's play some music. As I walk down the street Seems everyone I meet Gives me a friendly hello I guess I'm just a lucky so-and-so. Okay, a very brief coda regarding so. I can sense, Bob, that you're dying to know if so is, in fact, way more prevalent in the language now, you know, at the beginning, at the end, as an intensifier, just in general, than it was 20 or 30 years ago. As far as I could gather, there's no really good research about this either, but there's some provocative, unscientific conjecture. Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball and Liar's Poker, wrote a book in 1999 called The New New Thing. It was about Silicon Valley, and I want to read just a brief passage from that book. Lewis writes, When a computer programmer answers a question, he often begins with the word, So... Why did you come to Silicon Valley? So, I'm from this small town in Iowa. So cuts across the borders within the computing class, just as like cuts across the borders within the class of adolescent girls. It's the most distinctive verbal tick manufactured by the engineering mind. Silicon Valley engineers, for whom English is a second or even third language, acquire it as readily as native speakers. Nobody knows why. Mike! Mike! The first time I ever heard this, it was from someone from Silicon Valley. It was some sort of tech geek on, on, on the media. And come to think of it, most of this stuff comes from the West Coast. Well, this may be an explanation. I'm just going to finish a couple more sentences here from Michael Lewis. Some say that so imposes the semblance of logic on an essentially illogical event, human conversation. After all, so implies that the answer follows directly from the question. Others claim that so just buys you time to think. Yeah, I don't buy that time to think thing. No, 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 no. No, these are people who know their own mind, and they are announcing that with the very preliminary so. And that's all I have to say on this subject.
So, well, my challenge to all the discourse analysts—I like how you passed me the uh, upshot there. My challenge to all the discourse analysts out there is to tell us: Is there a good way to measure the frequency over time of these sentence beginning sos, and can that be linked to the ascendance of the computer age and a technological culture? That's all I want to know. <laughs> so if some, is that all? Yeah. So if somebody could make that their life's work to answer those questions, I'd be so grateful. Well, I would just caution anybody who undertakes this sort of research to carefully assemble data because we wouldn't want anyone to be misled. <laughs> all right. Send your comments, ideas, and suggestions to slatelexiconvalley at gmail dot com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of our show at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can leave a comment or a review. I want to thank Jeff Raymond at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. Yeah, Mike, we done here? We are done. All right, man. Later, Gator. Later.